Tonight's talk is about the theme of our retreat here together, and that is about equanimity. It's an understatement to say that we live in a time of great change. We see it uh, every side. We see it in the physical environment where even on local levels, uh, here I've heard various comments about how the weather is weird. It's that way on Maui too, how it's uh, changed so much. Where it has been so dry where we live uh, on that side of Maui, it's much wetter these days. We just see changes in the oceans, in the air, on the earth, locally, planetarily. And of course, the economic situation, which is pretty dire on a worldwide basis. And also, it affects us personally, or those we love, those who are near us. It's a very, uh, it's a very hard level, personal level, thing that we're experiencing with the economic situation. And so also the social and political landscape. We all know, even though we can be optimistic about, in one sense, about where we're headed because of the new cabinet and the new people in the White House, still it's a time of great change. And that change, any change, can be scary. Because with change comes uncertainty and facing the unknown. We can all say that change is a fact of life. Change for even the better is scary to go through. There's a lots, lots of ups and downs we have to open to. So it's understandable that we can feel anxious we can feel sometimes it's too much to bear. We can feel very vulnerable. And there's a lot more vulnerability in our lives and, and around us. Um, at many places we go to, they say, well, you know, how has it affected the Dharma? Um, maybe it's hard for people to come to the Dharma. And it is harder for people to come to the Dharma because it, it does cost something. Or maybe they have to keep their jobs, too, and stay with their jobs. Um, but on the other hand, a lot more people are coming to the Dharma because it's scary, because of great change. The Buddha talked about the eight worldly, worldly conditions that we're consistently faced with whether it's a time of great change or not. All throughout the history, the known history of time and probably the unknown history, we have borne witness to praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow. All of these uh, conditions, these ups and downs, are part of our lives. We see it world level, local levels, personal levels. All of us, in one way or another, are affected by it, of course. So the question for us is, how can we maintain a level of balance within all this change? How can we stay attentive and not space out? Because it's a safety net for us. 
how can we not get distracted by just going to what's pleasurable and keep our hearts open to what is unpleasant, to what's hard to keep our hearts open to. It's said that uh, opening to suffering is a proximate cause for compassion to arise. So can we truly open to suffering so that that kind of deep and authentic compassion can arise? A lot of times we're just paralyzed by what's happening. We're not connecting. And um, this is why we need a lot of balance just to stay open, just to stay connected. How can we maintain a balance of being attentive yet compassionate as well with all that's happening? I see it in relationship to the outer world as I face what's happening with my close friends, with people in our immediate family, uh, with people on the Dharma circle, and people in the world. Even when I am happy to see uh, the Obamas in the White House, <laughs> it's a happiness, a great happiness for me to see. Even though I don't agree with everything, of course, I have my own ideas and ways of looking at things. But it's also, I can also see that it's hard to be in that kind of um, fishbowl where, you know, how many pairs of shoes Michelle Obama has and, you know, all the pictures of her flat shoes were displayed on the internet one day. That kind of made me happy in one way. <laughs> and like, oh gosh, what a fishbowl. So just opening to all of that, the outer world and the inner world, when we're in retreat, what we're asked to do is open to all of the four foundations of mindfulness. This is the, uh, the teaching that has been handed down to us. Not just to the breath, not just to that place of safety all the time, but opening to it all, the pleasure and pain in the body, the pleasure and pains that we experience of the mind, the joys, the sorrows, the thinking process, pleasant or unpleasant, all the various uh, understandings, dharma understandings, even if they're hard to bear sometimes, takes a lot of open-heartedness, open-mindedness, courage, patience, balance, to open to all of that. When we open to our inner world, to that moment-to-moment -moment, uh, experience, we see all the fluctuations of the world there. We don't have to go very far. We need this quality of equanimity to navigate the inner terrain. And when we can navigate this inner terrain successfully or more and more easily, then it's easier to face the outer world of events. Equanimity implies balance. But the subjective experience of equanimity is not only balance, but a spacious balance, kind of a bigness of heart that doesn't close down, 
because it's experiencing something unpleasant or something that we don't think is right to experience. I think this spaciousness is something that we need to bring in more about our understanding of equanimity. This spaciousness is, you would say, a big heart. And to be human, it takes a big, big heart to be human, to be able to open to all the joys and sorrows, birth and death and everything in between and beyond and before. It takes a big, big heart to do that. To be able to open to it all and yet with compassionate understanding to say, this is how it is. It's how it is because it's already (laughs) in existence. It's not something we can control because it's already unfolding. Praise and blame, gain and loss, all of that are part of life. There's an African-American minister. Um, When I heard this phrase from his uh, words, it really was a a long-time koan for me, in a way. And the phrase was, seeing the world with quiet eyes. Seeing the world with quiet eyes. And to me, it described what it actually felt like now and then for me to see the world with quiet eyes and a quiet spirit, to be able to take in what is exposed in the world to me, what is there already and not closed down because I don't think it should be that way, because I think it's unjust or it's not right or because these are bad people. but. It takes just a a lot of quietness in the eyes, in the heart, in the mind to be able to say, can I open to this because it already is? It's not something I can say, no, don't be. Go back into the past or to some uncreated place where we can recreate you or it. To me, it felt like these words were experiencing life without reacting to it. So it was being able to just hold it with a mind, a big mind and heart of non-reactivity. Because reacting to it with aversion or fear, a, a place of closing down and saying, I don't want it to be so, or attachment because we're attached to some ideal of how it should be in life or how it should be for a certain person or a certain peoples. Um, Of course, it would be great if it could be that way and we can all work towards that goal for one person or for all beings, but it isn't that way. And by just refusing to accept that over and over again is reactivity. It may not be striking out with words or with actions because we know to be kind. We're all good people. But somehow when our hearts close down, may not hurt other people, but it hurts us. It definitely is painful. So I want to read to you from the Reverend Howard Thurman. And uh, this is 
where his words were embedded in it was a meditation of his entitled deep is the hunger and he says how may one work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and fatigue what are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes, its cruelty and joy, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. So it's not like he has the answers, but he asks these really, really important questions. And that's what, why it's a koan to me. It's like continually my life is trying to answer that. Um, how can I be <coughs> in the world with such a, a more and more open heart so I can even relate to and stay open to when it's directed towards me, towards this heart and mind? So as I engage in the various facets of my life, <coughs> I keep asking myself that question, how can I relate to what's going on with see it with quiet eyes, a tranquil spirit. It helps me to discern whether I'm drawing from a reservoir of equanimity, of um, open-heartedness, of a place of uh, love and compassion. And from there, maybe, it can support action and words in the world, or non-action, if that's what's really needed at that time. And more and more, I try to ask myself if I'm drawing from unhealthy patterns, if I see that just a quick moment of reactivity was because I wasn't seeing clearly or I didn't have time to discern how it is in my own heart. So I just acted out of patterns that really don't serve me or serve people around me. When I'm really honest, both sides come up, of course. Sometimes the, part, the patterns that have been more and more developed, they come out, and uh, I feel like I'm drawing from that well. But at times, other patterns come up. And of course, you know, it's hard to see them, but I'd rather see them than not see them, because not seeing them is delusion. And I don't want to live in delusion. I'd rather be open to them. And even if they sting my heart, it's kind of a wake-up call. It's, wake up. This is not a good place to draw from. So even though <laughs> It doesn't come out of our mouths sometimes or come into our actions. Like Steve said last night, sometimes we don't say it, we don't act it out, but we feel it. And that already is a pain. So in our training here, we're learning how to open to and explore that inner terrain of our hearts deeply enough so that we can see those long-held places and patterns of painful reactivity. This takes a lot of strength. 
This takes a lot of courage to do that. So in an experiential way, when we all tune in to, when we feel equanimity, I think that most of us can say that it has a great influence in our lives when we use it, when we draw from that place. Experientially, we feel that we're not being thrown off by the events of this world. We see them. They might impact us somehow because by seeing, by hearing, by feeling them experientially, they impact us. But we're not thrown off by them. And this is, maybe we, we have a, a kind of a gut reaction to them, but somehow on the level of verbal and behavior, that way we're not thrown off. But deep inside we may be a little bit imbalanced, but we come to a, a place of rebalance if we give ourselves time. We know that we don't have control over what is already happening in the world. It has already unfolded or it's in the process of unfolding. It's like a great fire has started and we do the best we can to put the fire out or to, or to do what we can to help. But it's really uh, hard to accept sometimes that we don't have control over what's going on what's already happening in the world. What we do have control over is how we respond to it, though. How we can refrain from acting it out, how we can refrain from our minds falling into extremes about what's going on. With equanimity, when we're not uh, falling into an extreme, in reactivity to what's going on. We can take time to discern. We can take time to know how to respond in the right way. Equanimity has many ways of manifesting non-reactivity, which is its main manifestation, non-reactivity. One of our colleagues calls this quality the ability to stand in the center and to see all sides. And somebody mentioned that today. Um, So this is an experiential knowledge to know that we can stand in the center and see all sides. The center is the best vantage point. It sees whatever is going on. A person who does this is an impartial person. It's a, a person that can see and hear the side of one person when, say, two beings are in some kind of strife uh, together. can hear and see one side, hear and see the other side, and really have compassion for both, for what's going on with all. I remember one time my children, two of my children were in a big fight. They were young then. And there was a lot of screaming and hollering, the usual stuff that goes on in a family. I I wasn't born with saints all around me, and neither am I a saint. But one said, Mommy, you're taking 
her side and the other said mommy you're taking his side you know whose side are you on and I really thought about it and I said I'm on everybody's side you know I really I really want to see what's happening with everybody it's kind of most of the time like a mother and father is you know just being able to really hold both sides having that vantage point that kind of impartiality in India, uh, they call this uh, equanimity seeing with patience. Seeing with patience. I think the words in the Indian language are seeing with patience. That connotes equanimity. And it is like when we see people close to us, like children in our lives or our own children fighting, and we can see that with patience sometimes. Sometimes we see them going through a hard time and we just see that hard time with patience. Kind of knowing they'll get through this. They'll get through this. It'll make them stronger in a way. To see without being caught by what is seen. This is seeing with patience. Seeing with balance. To see without being caught by what is seen. That means you know, just kind of tied up in knots about one thing or another. In the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses by the Buddha, there's a metaphor of a rock, and that rock maintains a steadiness. It's said in the suttas that this steadiness is the function of non-reactivity or equanimity. This has a strong influence on the balance of mind, this steadiness. So in this collection it says, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise, by blame, by gain, by loss, by pain, by pleasure. Goes through all of the vicissitudes. Not stirred by the winds, of change, basically. But when the heart and mind is stirred by the winds of change, which it will be by most of us, if not all of us, because um, I don't know about you, but I can't call myself a sage, which the Buddha is referring to here. When it has been already stirred by the winds of change and we feel our hearts in some reactivity, we can bring some measure of equanimity right there to our own hearts. Maybe we haven't been able to do it by the event outside of ourselves, but now we have a second chance. I always see this as a second chance to bring equanimity here to that place where I've already had some stirring, some reaction to what's going on. In that way, there's no further reactivity and other layers of pain that the heart has to work through in order to see clearly. So there are many times in life when we need to know we can rely on this inner steadiness, on this balance, on this patience. And we can feel equanimity as an inner refuge. Um, It's a great refuge. It's said in the 
teachings of the Brahma Viharas, those four um, places of the heart, divine abodes, metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. When metta is practiced and we come to that place of inner refuge, and with regard to whatever situation has arisen, it doesn't provide the help that we need. When um, compassion is practiced because of a situation and that doesn't provide the help that we need, when sympathetic joy is practiced for reasons we need to have sympathetic joy in our lives, and that doesn't work. When all of those fail to work, then we fall back on equanimity. This is the great refuge, the greatest refuge of these four uh, Brahma-viharas, it said. It's a place to gather strength, the strength to see more clearly, to see things as they are. not insisting on how it should be, not just going away in our minds into fantasy because it's an escape, but to see things as they are, to accept, to acknowledge, maybe is a better word, because acceptance could connote kind of like a resignation. But equanimity is not a resignation. It's just an acknowledgement. Our heart opens and says, okay, can I just live with how it is right now? Because it is as it is. I can't change things because it's already happened. What I do right now can change this coming moment, which will be present, and then future moments. So this develops wisdom And from that wisdom, a very authentic compassion can come. So I saw this balance and the steadiness and patience in a friend of mine. Um, We met with this friend just recently, had dinner with her and her husband. And she said something about how the Dharma helped her through these recent very trying times that she had. She said if it weren't for the Dharma, she didn't know how she could open to what was going on. She had to open to seeing things as they are, not to how she wanted them to be. So about this friend of mine, a few years ago, um, before I knew her actually, she had told me at one point that a son of hers had disappeared and this son of hers was in his 20s and she didn't know really if he was still alive. He had just disappeared and she of course did everything she could to find him. She didn't just sit there and say it's how it is. (laughs) She took action, did everything she could, but as the years went by she really had to accept that right now he can't be found and this is how it is. And it was a great heartache for her. However, I really felt her heart strong 
um, as she went through it, as my friend and as I saw her practice go through it. She wasn't ignoring or closing down. Her heart was open to her heartache within and to the fact of that situation. She held an inner vigil of patience and steadiness in her heart. She was a great, during that time, you know, just uh, silently admired her. It was a great loss to go through that time, very painful. And of course, it was a great mystery all the time, not knowing if he really was lost, but during the time he was gone, it was a loss to her. During that time period, she and her partner decided to sell their beautiful property that they created on Maui and um, to travel around the world and to end up where her daughter was in Europe. And so they did that. And just before she left, and in her last sitting with us at our house, we have a day long every month, she came to me and she's had great news. And she said, and she was so happy, you know, and she said, my son appeared. They found my son. And I was so moved, you know. She, she just told me this at the end of the day, and she said, I thought you would like to know. I, of course, you know, and I, I was so happy. What a gain, you know, what a great thing for her. Still, she was, she was happy, but not exuberantly elated, just like, yes, okay, now he's here, and that's what is right now. Now he's here in their lives again. And they were selling their property and going to travel, and what a great thing, what a great thing. And then while they were traveling in a foreign country in Asia, her partner was diagnosed with a serious medical condition. And there was no time to get back home. He had to have surgery immediately. And so I had heard about this. Of course, I, wasn't, uh, I, I didn't hear from her directly, but I had heard about this. And I'd also heard that she had a great health condition, uh, um, kind of terrifying. It had to do with her eyes and um, not seeing. And so she went through this also while in that foreign country. So a great um, hardship for them. You know, who knows, like you said, who knows what they're going through, but definitely it's hard. I mean, no matter which way you look at it, it it's going to be hard for people to go through that. But then they both got through it, and then that was okay. They, and it was better that he had his surgery there. They had all the great um, equipment to do the surgery, and so with her. So it was wonderful, so that there was that up and down. They went to visit her daughter in Europe, and the daughter just gave birth to a beautiful baby. And so through the internet, we got pictures of the baby, this wonderful, great birth. She was so happy. And her son, you know, her son who had gone was now there. Also, so her family's together. I mean, he wasn't there, but he was in, the, in Europe, but he was uh, alive and well part of the family. And then all of a sudden, she got news that her other son drowned. And this was like, oh, I, 
I can't tell you how my heart felt, you know, just as a mother and knowing this. This was a different son, son that she had had practice with the Dharma, in the Dharma with. They practiced together. Great happiness there. And so within a year, these incredible ups and downs in her life. And so we happened to be in Portland while they were just going to have the funeral in a couple of days. And we met her, and I really noticed her steadiness and her balance. And she said she was tired, and of course, and her heart went through so much. You know, in a way, she, who knows, as you say, who knows what's going on, but she looked pretty ragged. (laughs) But her heart was pretty okay at that moment. She said she spends a lot of time crying, but at that time she was okay. And she did say that the Dharma saved her life. Just having to be open to birth and death and all that's in between and before and beyond, all the ups and downs in life, all the trials that she had, you know, in the past year and years, all through this time, She mentioned, you know, just not with nonchalance, but she mentioned with a great depth. Well, she said over dinner, it is how it is. It's not, her heart was totally open and soft when she said this, but not with resignation, but it felt like a strength of softness, not the kind of from the head, you know, The Buddha said, this is how it is. Not that way, but just from experience. It said that the proximate cause for equanimity to arise is understanding that there are these situations in life. All of these situations, ups and downs, come about because of unknowable, unknowable causes and conditions. You can't trace it back. It goes so far back that you can't trace it back. So sometimes the metaphor of equanimity is of the sky, so infinitely spacious so that it can contain all the dualities and the diversities of the experiences and the people of this world. Can we have our heart be that open so that it can contain all of that? That's the question that our practice keeps asking us. Can we open our hearts big enough? Can we touch what's in our hearts, what it faces? Genuine loving kindness has this spaciousness. It said that the bigness of heart, the infiniteness of heart, of metta comes from equanimity. It's what gives it its spaciousness. I love this saying. I'm not sure where it's from. Equanimity is love that can encompass everything, yet possess nothing. It's not holding on to what's there. It's what I felt with my friend who could really hold her son, but she could also let go 
So it's this unconditional inclusivity to love when they're there, to love when they're not there, to love when it's hard, to love when it's easy, to love and understand when people are there that we don't like as well as the people that we like. So in the practice of metta, we begin with oneself and we go to what's more difficult from oneself, benefactor, friend, neutral person, difficult person, so we can develop this ability to open our hearts to all, even though we don't um, like everybody, we can love people. Sometimes you can feel that, you know, with people close to us, we can love them, but at times we don't like them, (laughs) or we don't like their actions. I should say. We see this quality of big-heartedness on the level of uh, people who show that in the world. Um, When a person can care for others so unconditionally, even for people they don't know, that there's a lack of fear in the um, exchange when we're exposed to something that we can be afraid of, for example, maybe we don't close down and we stay open to a person or to a situation, even though there's fear in our hearts. This is a story of one of our teachers, Manindraji, and it's a story of how he stayed open in the face of what might have been fear, but maybe it didn't even arise for him. This is a time when he was living in our home for a short while because he was um, recovering from an illness. And he was uh, living in this home in a small town that we lived in. Um, This is when Steve wasn't living with me at that time. And um, we lived in this home that was kind of a... mm, When we bought it, it was kind of a ramshackle house. And people didn't want to buy it because they thought it was haunted. And that's why we got it for such a good price. (laughs) It was when, it was a time when we really were scaling down in the 80s out of necessity. And so, yeah, that was the house we lived in. And just to describe Manindra, he's, um, an Indian man from uh, eastern India, and he has very dark skin, very, very dark, shiny, beautiful skin. And he wears white robes, and he goes around with a shaven head, and sometimes wears a little hat that he fashioned himself. He was a renunciate and um, an anagarika, so you would call him anagarika Munindra. So we were in this house, And he called me one day at my office. I had to leave him at home alone some of the times because I had a job. And um, he said, "Uh, oh, mom, he called me mom because the other kids called me mom. (laughs) He said, oh, mom, somebody has come into the house and uh, he needs help. And I said, well, where is this person now? And he said, oh, he ran away. (laughs) 
And I said, oh, wait, I'll, I'm coming right there. And I was a little bit, I was a little bit fearful for what was going on. And so actually I called the police. And I kind of knew what was going on. There was a man in the neighborhood who would go into the homes and he would go into the medicine cabinets to get medicines and that's what he would use uh, for his uppers and downers and I guess he knew all about it. So, um, but I didn't know what he was gonna do. So I called the police and when I got, I said, please go to my home. I have a relative there and you can ask him the questions you want, but I'll be right there. It took me about 15, 20 minutes to get home and the police were already there. With Menindra, you have to watch out when you ask questions because he will answer in complete detail and take so much time to answer. It's like, that's why we're so detail-oriented <laughs> about knowing every face because um, we learn to look at things in detail in the mind and heart. So he was answering the police, so what happened? So I was hearing his answer and I asked him some questions too. And he said, this man came into the house and with much more detail, he was saying. And um, he came in and I came out of the room and I saw this man going into the bathroom. Menindra's room was further back in the hallway and he came out and as the man was going into the bathroom, Menindra looked at the man, you know, completely foreign to Manindraji. And Menindra said in his lilting Indian accent, Bengali, he said, can I help you? And the man looked at the shiny, dark person in white robes and screamed. <laughs> <laughs> and he ran out of the house screaming out the back door. And the police said, well, what did you do? And he said, I chased him. <laughs> I ran after him. And um, well, why? And he said, he needed help. <laughs> so he's, he ran after him saying, please wait, I can help you, I can help you. And you know, just here's a man just completely open enough to see where there might, needs, might need some help and fearless in a way, but innocent in one way. Um, and uh, that was Manindra's open-heartedness, just keeping everyone in his heart. And I often saw him do that as we went through our lives together. How he could keep people in his heart even if they were not nice to him. You know, how he um, kept him there in his heart. He could see the world with tranquil eyes, quiet eyes, not being thrown off by events beyond his control. He remained steady, able to offer his help. This is the um, <clears throat> manifestation of equanimity. The ability to offer our help, this compassionate action, it said, comes from equanimity. Because when we're able to take action, it's because we might have a more balanced mind and heart when true compassion can come from there. Not always. It could come out of anger sometimes, a time when we should just wait when anger isn't there and then act. So another way we feel this strength working within us is when we know how to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. 
These extremes are the far enemy of equanimity and the near enemy. So first the far e enemy. It's called the far enemy because you can see it from afar. And it's called reactivity. There are two parts to reactivity. The first part is aversion and all the various strands of aversion. Uh, you know, ill will, uh, frustration, impatience, rage, all of that from the subtle to the gross. And we know those places within ourselves. Um, it includes resentment, hatred, fear, judging, criticizing, all those parts of ourselves that show up when there is an event that triggers what's go what, what that pattern is inside. So that's one part of reactivity. The other part of reactivity is attachment or any way that it reacts to outer events. Usually the different forms of attachment that we experience are not just attachment to people, but more specifically attachment to how we want them to be. This is what we look out for in the metta practice. You know, when we're, we want this to be a blessing, just this offering of our goodwill. May you be happy. You know, we offer our goodwill. But then we make it so there's attachment to result of that. And we know it's that when we kind of say, as I sometimes say to my children when I'm offering my goodwill, and there's some attachment to how I want them to be, because I might say, may you please be happy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so <laughs> you don't bother me in a way. You know, it comes back to oneself. So attachment to people, attachment to how we want it to be for people, it's not like um, this simple open-hearted wish. Of course we want them to be happy. But when we're attached to that, it's not really goodwill. It's more attachment. So attachment to our opinions, attachment to pleasant experiences. We have, um, uh, sometimes we have a pleasant sitting, something that's wonderful, blissful sitting, calm. And there's attachment to that. We're attached to the pleasant aspect of that. This also is reactivity. It's subtle, but it's also reactivity. As we all know, a pleasant abiding isn't the uh, aim of vipassana. It isn't the aim of this practice. It's uh, part of the practice. But when we have attachment to it, this can be a problem. Equanimity disarms our compulsion to react with greed or aversion. And this is what His Holiness calls the real disarmament, disarming greed and aversion within. Maybe we don't uproot it, but we disarm the reactivity that creates more, that puts in those karmic seeds in our karmic stream that eventually sprout and we bear the, um, the fruit of. It's helpful to be able to see these tendencies before they take hold of the mind completely. We feel 
Maybe we become familiar with it. We feel the heat of uh, aversion or anger coming on. Or we feel the stickiness of attachment in our hearts, in our minds. We, we kind of keep wanting it to be a certain way. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. And this is a big part of knowing <clears throat> what's going on within. So that when we know the inner terrain, we can rest before it's acted out in our words, in our deeds. This is why we do the equanimity practice the way we do, so that we're not just aware of the outer event, but we know what's going on inwardly, and we can come to a place of steadiness with regard to that inner experience, even if we can't do it with the outer experience. Maybe someplace inwardly we can. I really appreciate um, this is a prayer of Mother Teresa. And I really appreciate this prayer and within it knowing the awareness that she developed in her quietude, in, in her path, knowing her inner world through her way of meditating and knowing herself. And so in her own Catholic tradition, um, she asked for help around the pitfalls of what she saw in her own heart, the greed and the hatred, and all the various strands of it in her own heart. So this is her prayer to respect in, in her way of prayer. So she says and asks, Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I love her humanness, and I'm really struck by her humility and her courage and openness to um, reveal what's going on in her inner world because she knows that inner terrain. When we know the inner terrain, we, we're not caught by it. It's the ignorance, the ignoring, the delusion about the inner, our inner world is where we're caught by it, when we're caught by it. So this ability to be spacious enough allows for that clarity because we're not so closed-minded that we push everything away that we don't feel comfortable with. In a way, we're pushing ourselves away. When we talk about the separateness of you and me, of us and them, there's some place more closely we can look. We don't even need to go there first. It's that separateness that 
we experience because we don't even accept all of ourselves and every part of ourselves. Can we go there first before we talk about all the us and them, before we talk about the I and the you? This is what our practice asks of us. If our minds are like that, so spacious, so inclusive about every part of ourselves, it allows the ability to notice more clearly, to to be that honesty. You know, in the um, in the precepts um, that we've taken, we take every day the precept of not speaking an untruth and always being truthful. In the time that the Buddha was becoming a Buddha, in his time of the Bodhisattva, he broke every precept except that one. He always told the truth. And one time when I was uh, practicing with Upandita, I realized why. Because um, there was a time when we were, we were reporting to Upandita, and we were in a small group reporting, and some people were reporting very wonderful experiences and staying up all the time, all uh, being able to be with every single breath without break, and all of that, and <laughs> you know, being in bliss and all of that, and it was unbelievable, you know, and 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 so I I reported, but I kind of knew I just had to be really clear and say what was going on. So I said what was going on, and maybe others did too. I can't remember that clearly, but in that Dharma talk he gave that evening, he said, um, it's so important to tell the truth. How can you realize the truth if you can't open to the truth? the truth of your own hearts, what's going on here. You won't realize the truth if you can't open to the truth. This is what separates us, really. And so he said, those of you who have not told me the truth, I want you to line up outside my door and tell me that you haven't told the truth. And I really examined, and I I realized I did tell the truth. But it really woke me up to that. And so in this practice, we're opening to the truth as it is, not as we want it to be, not ignoring what's happening. This letter that I'm going to read is a Dharma teaching, and it's from a friend of ours. Uh, All of our friends and all of our students are our friends in a way, in all ways. And um, she talks about her ups and downs and ways that she handles it and with such candor. And her, her illness, uh, she's in a foreign country where we teach, and her illness has been an open book. And uh, her condition and how she's responded to it has been open. So this is part of, this is a teaching from her. She says, Hello, Kamala and Steve. Although remembering how ill I was leading up to the hospital admission early March last year and all the horrible subsequent chemo side effects, and I want to stop here and say, 
they gave her the wrong dosage of chemo because they amputated one of her legs and they didn't take that into effect when they gave her the dosage. So she had the terrible effects from chemo. And she wrote about it in another letter that was like over the top. So she continues to stay. I still find it hard to bring words like, I have cancer, over my lips. In fact, it somehow feels like a joke, as cancer and I just don't seem to go together. My not liking and suffering because of it, my husband's problems, and his not coping ongoingly, was and is so much worse, paling the cancer, as well as the utterly agonizing chemo side effects, which were just that, absolutely awful, but I didn't suffer from them or from being unable to walk or care for myself. That's how it was. Chaos there, even-mindedness here. Now that shows me how multi-leveled I am. Even-minded, yes, but then not at all sometimes. In fact, so many facets, but by directly seeing them, therefore no weight or pain. Or rather, really feeling the weight makes a difference as long as I can really see no matter what, I feel okay. But then, ha ha ha, the agitation, like yesterday, reading the hematologist's review, all those diagnoses, how can that person still live? And that person is me. And reading this report feels like being made into this sickness. His words, creating my problems. When under the bottom line, I'm fine. So many levels, yes, I'm fine, as long as I can see, as I said above. According to a scan mid-January, no new bumps or lumps have appeared, and yet I continue to ask, what if? There's a recurrence. My continuous answer, no more chemo regardless. There's no guarantee anyway. Better live now. That's what I do, trying to be aware trying to take what is rather than bemoan what is not. So many words, but that's how I feel, mostly, sometimes. Despite many friends, I like being by myself, and yet I'm often asked, aren't you bored? No, I'm not, ever. How often have I said, I don't have time, nor now I do, and I enjoy the time. I love not being in the hospital, love being able to cook, read, knit, no longer nauseous or headachy, still mouth ulcers, but manageable, tip of tongue still tingling, burning, some taste impairment, indoors can slowly walk unaided, each step such a practice. Still cannot lift my foot, so I have to raise my knees, more to prevent stumbling, yay, touch wood, haven't had a fall, nor do I intend to. Three days later, she writes, how quickly things and feelings change. Recently, my sister, along with her hubby and two teenage sons, came from Europe. 
Until they would find their own abode, I offered them to stay with me. Make my home your home, as long as you don't cook meat in my pan, I said. Then everything will be okay. We got on exceptionally well, despite various differences, which I mainly took as teachings, and mostly I felt at ease. So too, one day, eagerly expecting their return from an outing, looking forward to them and to the pizza they promised to bring, we were all sunshine and I particularly noticed my ease, or rather absence of unease. We laughed and chatted until out of the blue, I felt struck by lightning, as if banged over the head, cheese grater on the spine, stabbed in the heart, heat waves and heart racing, wanted to scream in agony. She definitely our student. <laughs> she describes everything in detail. And the thoughts, how dare she, how inconsiderate, give people a finger and they'll take the whole hand. Too stunned, I just sat there, sat there, unable to utter a word because of what they had done to me, but more so watching my reactions. Unbelievable how quickly, in a second, my mood changed. Kept thinking, this is how quickly mood can change, not only for me, but for everyone. This is how crazy life is. All I could do was breathe until finally getting up, laughing to myself at my inability to act any other way, despite seeing so clearly, ha, ha, ha. Storming to my room, watch out not to fall, grabbing a flask of peppermint oil, <laughs> splashing it all around me to override the dead animal stink wafting from the oven, <laughs> while at the same time reasoning, they have not used the pan. <laughs> I have not asked them not to use the oven, not even for meat pizza. They should have, but they should have more sense, you know. Me, 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 poor me, them, 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 damn them. <laughs> she really shows it all. But also, at the same time, I remembered Kamala talking about how we sometimes want to lash out. Yes, 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 hissing to, hissing to myself. This is how it sometimes is, how it is right now. Hardly able to contain myself, I badly wanted to lash out, but didn't. Instead, and then she puts, is this the stuff of a good movie or what? In dead silence, I shunned the pizza and fixed myself something else from the fridge. Not that I had any appetite. Aren't we humans so utterly crazy? Reactions all over the place when getting something unwanted or not getting something wanted. In my experience, this is a major cause of suffering, and I'm continuously amazed at how difficult it can be to break the cycle. But working with it, I find joyful. And the fact that I could laugh, only internally though, and that the whole scenario did not leave ill feelings against them in my heart. Keeping her heart open, that was big. So another extreme, 
I talked about the far extreme, which is reactivity. And the other extreme is called the near enemy, which is seeming like equanimity, but it really isn't. It's indifference. It's apathy. It's a cold distancing or aloofness from what's going on. It can feel like an emotional emptiness. As someone pointed out today, it's not, it's, uh, equanimity is when you feel really connected. And uh, apathy is when you don't feel connected at all. It's the exact opposite of that. It's a kind of a feeling sometimes of callousness, some people say, when they feel that. It's um, I don't care. It's kind of a I don't careness. Sometimes underneath that is an a, an, a fear to open because we don't really know how to handle it. If we had more equanimity, we'd have a kind of a, a fearlessness, more courage to open when we do have equanimity. Sometimes when I say that, I don't care. You know, it's, I know that somehow there's some apathy there. I really do care, but I just can't face it right now. And sometimes we have to respect that, but to know that there is this apathy that's present. Um, when equanimity is there, we may be quiet about it. And it can seem like indifference from the outside. It can seem like apathy or I don't care. But there's really a balance inside. And we can take action from that balance. I want to go back to a moment to Steve's story about the clear cut. Did you talk about the clear cut last night? Was it here? I can't remember because of all the retreats. at that clear-cut retreat where they cut down the trees nearby. Um, I was sitting there and offering metta meditation during a time they were clear-cutting. And we were going on offering the metta, and everybody was doing their practice. They were doing the best they could, offering metta to um, everyone around, including the people who were cutting the trees. You know, had the courage to do that. But there was a point where I really felt like I could come to a place of connection and caring enough, a place of balance enough in my heart, where I asked the students to continue with their metta practice and I would come back. And um, I just had to leave for a moment. So I felt really balanced. I got up from my seat and I went out and I walked up this hill where the clear cutting was taking place and walked straight to the person in charge who was giving the orders for the clear cutting. And I said, just with just a matter of factness and no attachment, I I didn't know if he would respond and I just had to do what I could. And I said, I know you have your job to do and you've I made all these plans and you're carrying out your job and I have a job to do and this is my job and I'd really like you to listen to what my job is I'm trying to teach these people to um, do some kind of quiet practice and um, and really could use your help and he actually listened he really opened and he listened 
and he received what I had to say. And um, I don't know whether that had an effect or not. But we, in the meantime, we somehow, through the owners of the meditation retreat, negotiated with him, and they agreed to stop at a certain time. But I want to give that story and to drop it into your knowledge and your memory, because equanimity doesn't mean just sitting back and saying, this is how it is, and I'm not going to do anything about it. It's, will you do something about it? But how they respond to what you do, you don't have any control over. It might have a beneficial effect, might have an effect that benefits you yourself, but maybe it doesn't. And so we take action based on this equanimity. So in deeper practice, it's said that equanimity is a doorway to peace. It's described by the Buddha as this place of being abundant. It holds everything, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without attachment, without ill will. It brings about this ability to have non-preferential awareness, not preferring that we are aware of this moment and not another because it's uncomfortable. No matter what arises, we can bring awareness to that moment. It maintains its steadiness, even-mindedness, neutrality. Nothing to get elated by that we grasp at. Nothing to close down at that we develop aversion towards. Just this gentle, even-mindedness. I'd like to end with them. This is from the Third Zen Patriarch that talks about this great way to liberation in these deep spaces of the mind and the heart. Not necessarily to do with everyday life, but more to do with the deepening into understanding and the gateway to to liberation. The great way is not difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion, and everything will be perfectly clear. Cling to a hair's breadth of distinction, and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. Because you select and reject, you can't perceive true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things, and all errors will disappear by themselves. So let's sit for a moment. <laughs> 